Welcome back to the program. There once was a time back in the 18th and 19th centuries when public shaming was the norm. The stockades, corporal punishment, torture marks, and even the famed scarlet letter all represented ways in which society expressed its scorn. Today, with the power and reach of the Internet and social media, we are in a golden age of shame. Monica Lewinsky's recent TED Talk on the subject has been viewed over three million times. But has this new age of shaming made us better? Has it made us more just or just more paranoid? The longtime radio host Don Imus used to say he liked to ask guests especially tough questions because he hoped that their answers would ruin their careers. Today, that same thing can happen in the blink of a tweet. We're going to focus on shaming today with my guest John Ronson. Ronson is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Psychopath Test, and it is my pleasure to welcome him here today to talk about his new book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. John, thanks so much for joining us. That's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Jeff. How are you? Good. It's great to have you here. In many ways, there's kind of a disconnect going on in society today in that, especially young people, everybody is more open, more willing to put their lives out there for everyone to see. And yet shaming is at this this all-time high. There's kind of this golden age of shaming. And the two, in many ways, seem to be dissonant with each other. Talk a little about that first. Yeah, I, because there's a sort of there's an idealism going on. And I'm, I felt part of this idealism that this wonderful new invention was out there, social media. Everybody had a voice. Um, and mo- m- many people were finding that their voices were, were eloquent. You know, silenced people found they had eloquent voices. And it was, it was amazing. And, and in many ways, that aspect of things continues to be amazing. But what seemed to happen is that we, we, what took over us on social media was the idea that because we were silenced and now we had a voice, we could do things. We could make the world better. Um, we could attack columnists who who were racist or homophobic. You know, if the powerful transgressed, we could do something about it. Um, and then what happened? And uh, you know, up until this point, everything's great. But then what happened was that we fell in love with it so much. We fell in love with attacking the privileged that we started to just like attack everybody. We let our standards slip, and people who didn't deserve it were suddenly finding themselves ruined because of some joke that came out badly. And there is this kind of endless retaliation that seems to go on in the process of all of this. On the one hand, people are are seemingly less compassionate, quicker to find fault with others, and then they could just as easily become the victims. Yeah, exactly. There's like, I mean, I tell one story in in my book. Um, What I wanted to do in my book, by the way, is not write a polemic, but write a sort of adventure story where I go into the world of the shamed and the shamers and uh, and make the reader feel what it feels like. And it feels terrible. It's tense and panicky and it's just carnage everywhere. And uh, anyway, one of the stories I tell... Um, really gets to the heart of just what happens, what goes wrong when everybody just just uh, starts shaming everybody else. And um, so this is a story about a man called Hank who was in a tech conference near near you in um, Santa Clara. That's quite near you, isn't it? Yes, indeed. 
Okay, phew. I thought I just completely screwed up my <laughs> no. West Coast geography. Uh, and um, he was—he whispered. So he was in a Czech conference, and he whispered some stupid sexist joke to the guy sitting next to him in the audience, something about big dongles, um, which I think works both as sexual innuendo and also Czech reference. Um, and the woman sitting in front turned around and took a photograph, and he thought that she was taking a picture of the crowd, so he just looked ahead, trying not to mess up her shot. But actually, she had overheard the joke, and she decided to call him out on it. So she took a photograph of him and his friend and tweeted it um, with, a, with a caption that said something like, you know, not cool, jokes about big dongles right behind me. Um, and he got fired. He got fired from his job the next day. And then... And I think the reason why he got fired, or certainly one of the main reasons, is because social media is frightening. They have to, you know, employers have to just throw their employees under the bus, you know, lest social media gets them next. And then the woman who took the photograph, she got chained and destroyed. She ended up getting um, two years' worth of rape threats and death threats, and everybody was attacking everybody. Everybody was attacking everybody else, and she had to move home, and somebody set a malicious program onto, onto her company's website, so she got fired. He got another job. She still doesn't have another job because the tech industry is kind of <laughs> male-dominated and, and there's terrible gender inequality. So in a way, she was right to begin with. But what a terrible story. That, you know, everybody thought they were punching up. Everybody thought they were fighting a good fight. But all it was was just piling shaming onto the shaming. And it just ended up as carnage. One of the other interesting disconnects and contradictions in all of this is that, as you talked about before, the idea of all of this technology, the idea of all of this social media, was to give people a voice that had been previously voiceless. And the net result of it is that it has been profoundly limiting as far as speech is concerned because of the paranoia that you're talking about. Yes, that, it's so interesting, isn't it? And, and it's, you know, we, never, we don't learn from our mistakes of the past. You know, it's, we, we turn real life into animal farm. <laughs> we, we create this beautiful system for ourselves and, and the opposite happens. You're right, now people are, you know, towards the end of my book, somebody said to me, a journalist said to me, you know, that he has so many little thoughts and ideas and, you know, potentially risking things and he, and he dares not post any of them onto social media anymore because, you know, social media is like tiptoeing around an angry, unbalanced parent that might strike out at any moment. Uh, he said it's terrifying. You know, we've created a system that is terrifying. And I think it's not just chilling ideas. It's also damaging people. Um, I gave a talk recently in London about this, about my book, and um, somebody came up to me afterwards and said she was a, a child therapist, and pretty much every child who comes to her damage now is damaged because of something that happened on social media. What is the nexus, though? Because this relates to young people as well, that there's this strange nexus between shaming on the one hand and self-esteem on the other. Talk a little bit about that. Yes, I, I met a, well, I met an extraordinary, well, okay, if you're ashamed, I, this is a slightly different answer to your question, but I, just, I met an extraordinary psychiatrist I was writing this book who spends his life with um, maximum security prisoners. Um, and his conclusion after interviewing you know, hundreds of 
murderers over the years is that they all held a, a central secret and that secret was that they felt ashamed, profoundly ashamed um, because as children they had been beaten and scolded and you know, abused and vicious, you know, physically and mentally abused. And the conclusion he came to is that all violence is an attempt to replace shame with self-esteem. Um, but I know that's a slightly different answer to your question. Your, mm -hmm. your question maybe was about does it help the self-esteem of the shamers? And is that why, is that why well, they're doing well, it? Well, the, the, the other part of it is that we are filling young people today with such huge amounts of self-esteem that we're pouring in that when shaming happens, it has an even more devastating consequence, one that is harder to cope with. That's such an interesting point, which I didn't really look at when I was writing the book. Um, the idea that exactly, I mean, I'm, I'm totally guilty of that. I'm constantly telling my son, you know, how amazing he is. <laughs> we all do that, right? Because we, we do the opposite of what our parents did to us. That's just human nature. With this pendulum swings wildly from one side to the other. Um, and so maybe, you know, so everybody's told that they are their own corporation. Um, you know, they're their own awesome being. And then if they're shamed, if they're cast out into the wilderness, it's like, you know, even more profoundly traumatizing. I think that's true. What I can certainly tell you is that, you know, unless you're a very rare person who doesn't feel shame, and I don't think there's many of those people at all, um, it is profoundly horrendous to be at the end of the shaming. It, it mangles people's mental health. Um, it's it's much more damaging than people think that it is. Um, you know, I met people who were publicly shamed for you know for some small transgressions, a joke that came out badly, and um, they didn't leave home for a year and a half. You know, suffering trauma and depression and anxiety and insomnia. When you talk to people that had recovered from shaming, and, and Monica Lewinsky's recent TED Talk is kind of instructive in that regard, in her talking about that there is a life after public shaming, the people that got through it, the people that handled it, what qualities did they have? What was the secret formula for getting to the other side of public shaming? I mean, I wish I could tell you that there is a secret formula, but it kind of isn't. Um, the people who get through shaming tend to have something to fall back on. So one of the people I write about in my book is a Formula One um, Formula One racing guy called Max Mosley who was sex shamed. He was part of a, he got exposed being part of a, uh, an S&M orgy in Britain. And he survived. I think he survived because he didn't feel in the least bit ashamed. He said it's sex. When it comes to sex, everybody knows people do and say and think strange things. So he just, you know, and he said, you know, you're the idiots that are trying to shame me. Uh, another guy I spoke to was a, who, who survived was a, a theatre guy called Mike Daisy, um, who was shamed on the public radio show This American Life for faking some facts in a story. And he survived, I think, because he had a, um, a theatre career to fall back on. You know, he, so again, he had like a support group to fall back on. The people who don't survive other people who have nothing. You know, some a PR woman who makes a joke that lands badly and uh, you know, and ends up like completely destroyed for this joke, has nothing to fall back on, has lost her career, has lost her reputation. 
the only way to survive something like that um, is to just stay totally silent for a year or two, just stay completely silent for a couple of years and just hope they forget. And people do forget because there's always somebody else coming along or somebody else that's shamed. I mean, in a way, the only answer to it is a kind of mutually assured destruction where everybody has the potential for being shamed. Exactly, because once you've been shamed, it's really hard for you to go off and shame somebody else because you know how agonizing it is. You know how you know profoundly anxiety-inducing it is. So maybe the way things are going is that everybody's going to end up getting shamed. Everyone's going to have their 15 minutes of shame, and then it will die out because everybody will know how appalling it is. Well, it's, 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 it's <laughs> so that's, not a, that's not a happy ending. Right, but it's interesting to look at it in that kind of historical context, because if we look at the public shaming that went on in the 18th and 19th century in particular, it died out, it went away because it became too brutal in many respects. Mm. And the great thinkers of the 18th and 19th century were just, you know, pleading, you know, with with um, the judicial system and just with the good hearts of the people to, to, to let's stop doing this. It's too brutal. You know, the punishments outweighing the crimes. And once you've been, you know, publicly whipped at the whipping post, you're branded forever at mangles. You know, basically, the, the, the great thinkers of the 17th and 18th century were saying in their own words, this mangles people's mental health. Um, and it's not fair. And um, we've forgotten that. And we are we are doing it again. We are bringing it back. It's this great renaissance. The other part of it that we're really at the very beginning of, if if we do wind up going much deeper in it, is is the legal consequences of all of this. The way in which the law takes a look at this. Yes. Well, um, what's kind of interesting is that um, I met a judge. Um, when I was writing this book, who does shaming as a punishment? You know, as a he's a, a, a right wing judge, friends of George W. Bush, and so on. And he sentences people to public shamings. He makes them walk up and down the sidewalk, holding a wearing a placard that says, "I killed two people while driving drunk," and so on. Um, and I spoke to the people who he had sentenced, and they said to me. It was the best thing that ever happened to me um, because people stopped their cars and said, oh, you poor thing, come with me to church. You know, this was in Texas. Um, uh, things will be okay. And it made me realize, gosh, well, hey, we're worse. We are worse than that because when we publicly change something on the internet, nobody says things are going to be okay. Nobody says, you know, oh, you poor thing. We just, we, we either pour, we either pile in on somebody or we stay completely silent because it's too frightening to defend them lest we be turned on next. It's interesting you were talking about individuals as thinking themselves as, as kind of a business or a brand. I mean, it really goes to the heart, too, of the way corporations act today and the way they are so afraid of anything that, that, impacts their brand individuals need to work and operate in the same way in many respects yeah we are we're like we, we've all had to learn how to be like corporations learning damage control you know we make a joke on twitter that lands badly suddenly you know 50 people are telling us you know that's not cool that's not funny uh, and it's painful and scary and agonizing because you know in a worst case scenario it's not 50 people it's a hundred thousand people telling you that because that's how quickly things travel and yeah we have to learn damage control you know when why did we create a system for ourselves where every human being has to learn damage control 
it's, 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 you know, we, we had this beautiful invention and look at what we did with it. Is there at, at the heart of this finally just simply a lack of compassion, a lack of understanding about what makes people tick that lies at the heart of this? Yes, I think that is exactly what it is. We, we have tricked ourselves on social media to believe that some bad tweet, you know, 10,000 perfectly good funny tweets, one bad tweet uh, is a clue to that person's inherent evil, like we're sleuths who can spot clues to people's inherent evil. And of course, we know that isn't true about our fellow human beings. We know that our fellow human beings are dimensional. That's the word that Monica Lewinsky used in her Mm -hmm. wonderful TED Talk. She said, um, people forget that I am dimensional and there was a time when I wasn't broken. And that's what I want my book to do. You know, this is why I feel so passionate about this book. This book is is a reminder that the proper way to behave to other people, both in terms of just being a good person, but also in terms of making society better, is, is kindness and compassion and empathy. And, you know, if my book can do anything, it can do that. It can remind us that we're all dimensional. We're all stupid and clever and we make mistakes and we don't make mistakes. And that is actually what human beings actually are, not these one-dimensional demons. John Ronson. The book is So You've Been Publicly Shamed. John, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Yes, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you.